Hi everyone, welcome back to Invested, where we talk about wealth as being more than just money. Our partners Paul Rand, Joel Rand, and Sarah Minikari will bring in guests and industry thought leaders to chat about meaningful topics on personal finances, health and wellness, ideas for your business, tax planning, and other key issues that impact our lives and our livelihood. So thank you for joining us, and we hope you find our discussions not only practical and educational, but maybe sometimes a little thought-provoking. With that, let's get to the episode. Hello, and welcome back to Invested. On this week's episode, we are extremely fortunate to have a very good friend of the RAND Group, Kyle Casarino. Kyle is a vice president and charitable planning consultant with Fidelity Charitable. During our conversation with Kyle, we will discuss the basics of donor-advised funds, how they work, as well as some of the more advanced ideas on how to leverage donor-advised funds to not only supercharge your charitable giving, but cover how they can be incorporated into financial planning techniques to maximize tax efficiency along with your philanthropic goals. With that, let's get to our conversation with Kyle and discover how to make giving more strategic and impactful. Hello and welcome back to Invested. Uh, Today we are with Kyle Casarino, Vice President and Charitable Planning Consultant with Fidelity Charitable. Kyle, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me, Paul. All right. We haven't, uh, you were just in the office just a couple of days ago, so it's good to see you virtually again, but better it was in person when we had had you visit. So uh, today we're here to talk about donor advised funds, the world of exciting donor advised funds, um, of which you spend all of your time and we talk plenty about. Mm-hmm. Um, so one of the things I thought we would start with um, is when we work with our clients, uh, we go through, we talk about planning and we talk about how terribly inclined they may or may not be. And then when they do that, um, when we talk about that, one of the things Sarah and I come across and we say, yes, so we do donations to charity and we say, okay, well, how are you doing that? And often what we find is that clients are actually writing checks to charities and that's probably more frequent than not. Um, and then we go, aha, we got some ideas. Uh, we can save some taxes. And in some cases we go through the, the, the first step of that, which is, hey, have you ever donated an appreciated asset, right? So taking a stock that's gone up by X percent and giving that stock directly to the charity and most charities, most of the larger ones, and correct me if I'm wrong, have a system set up to receive securities. However, the downside of that is that that can be a little bit onerous by the time you figure out who's on the charity that handles that transfer and then we get the numbers and then we do the transfer and the price may change. So there are some more efficient methods of doing that. Uh, So that's one of the things we're going to talk about with with donor advised funds. But when we go through that and explain that to the clients, we talk about the sort of magical tax implications of giving appreciated assets where you can take a holding and say you bought a stock at $100 and now that $100 stock is now worth $1,000. And if you were to sell it, you would have a $900 capital gain that you would need to report and most likely pay taxes on it. And instead, what we can do is maybe take that $1,000 worth of stock, donate that to a charity, avoid paying the capital gains taxes, and still get the credit for the charitable donation. 
So that's one way of doing it. Uh, so that's the kind of magic behind the scenes. But what we want to talk about in more depth is go to your expertise and talk about donor advised funds and how that can be done more easily. So with that, can you just kind of give us some basics of donor advised funds and how they work and the mechanics of that? And then also, can you talk a little bit uh, about Fidelity Charitable in general? And how does that differ from Fidelity the Custodian or is it the same company and how, what's, how's all that work? Yeah, so there's a lot in there, Paul. I mean, the, I think that before I dive into the Fidelity Charitable piece, so you made a really good point earlier about donors that are giving cash to nonprofits, which is super inefficient, right? I mean, to think about what you have to do to actually give cash, right? You have to earn it as in, income, pay income tax on it, or sell an appreciate asset and pay capital gains tax in order to give cash. And I did the, I did the math the other day for a California resident, and this is assuming they don't have a 401k or health insurance, they have to clear 2.1 million in order to have about a million dollars in their checking account to give to charity. So you're totally right about the idea that, hey, giving appreciated assets is always better, right? We have a lot of a lot of clients that, you know, will buy Apple years and years ago for $10,000. Now it's worth 50K. Instead of selling that asset and paying the capital gains on the 40,000, it's much better off to give it to charity. Why? Because the donor gets the $50,000 tax write-off, the charity has $50,000 to use for their own mission. And at the end of the day, it only costs the donor $10,000 to take a $50,000 write-off. Um, so totally spot on about giving appreciated assets, That's always magic. better than cash. That's right. We often find that clients that you know are reluctant to gift their Apple or their Amazon or their Netflix for fear of giving up exposure to that one company. But you know, the comment that we say to them is, hey, we can buy back the same exposure of Amazon, Apple, tech, I mean, whatever, and they're getting a step up in basis. So it's a win-win. Right. That client was going to give away $50,000 a year anyway in cash, right? So you're better off giving that highly appreciated asset, buying the shares back even the next day. To your point, you get the step up in basis so that when you do want to sell down the road, you're not getting crushed with capital gains. Right. right. So just to kind of recap that for a second, we bought the stock at 100 bucks. Stock goes to $1,000. And whether that's 50 shares or 100 shares or whatever the number of shares is, we bought it at 100. It goes to 1,000. I now take that $1,000 share or shares of stock. I donate that. And I take the cash that I would have used to donate to the charity and buy back that same stock. So my portfolio hasn't changed. But in effect, what I've done is raise the basis on my holding from $100 with that $900 of embedded capital gains, now up to $1,000. And my basis is now $1,000. Exactly. And my portfolio has yeah, yeah. Annie got the deduction. Annie have a pool of funds for the future to give to nonprofits. Exactly. Pre-tax money in the account to give to your favorite charities. And I mean, I, well, I'm sure we'll get into this a little bit later too, but we see it, a lot of applications with concentrated positions or a, an asset that's really appreciated and all of a sudden might be a little bit overweight in the portfolio. That same cash that you'd buy back the shares with, you could use to diversify or buy another asset to sort of balance yourself out. So Exactly. And I was just looking at a portfolio the other day. And when you have something like an Apple that is at a thousand percent gain, literally a thousand percent gain, right? And hey, it's become a larger percentage of the portfolio than we're comfortable with. How do we trim that back? Well, this is one of the ways of doing that. Exactly. And the issue for a lot of a lot of folks is that they look at their portfolio all the time and say, you know, I have this really highly appreciated asset, but I really don't want to sell it because I know I'll get crushed in taxes. Yep. 
right? So those are perfect assets to gift once. And really, that's what I spend a lot of time on doing is educating donors and their advisors about, you know, hey, like, let's pick handpick the most highly appreciated asset in your portfolio, because you sell it, you're going to have the biggest capital gain bill on that asset. And usually that's the one with the lowest cost basis, highest percentage gain. Um, always good to look at. So uh, in terms of Fidelity Charitable, just to kind of give you a quick overview, we were started back in 1991, so 30 years ago. And at the time, it was uh, Fidelity Investments' chairman and CEO, Ned Johnson, that really that really founded the program. Community foundations have been doing something similar to what we have since the 50s. So it's been a while, but the barrier to entry was really high for folks, right? You still, in order to set up a foundation or in order to set up a, an account with a community foundation, you had to have at least a half million, million dollars in charitable assets to give. At that same time, mutual funds were becoming more popular, right? So it was the idea that, hey, you don't really need to be a millionaire or a huge philanthropist to be effective with your charitable giving. The same thing like you didn't need to have a million dollars to invest in a basket of stocks. You can just buy this mutual fund for a lower dollar value, still have access to a bunch of different different assets. So, um, you know, fast forward now 30 years, and the idea was is like, hey, we're going to democratize charitable giving, make it so that everybody across the spectrum, whether you're the America's top 0.1% philanthropist or just your average everyday donor that gives every month to your church, everybody in between, the idea that, hey, like you can take advantage and be a lot more strategic both on the tax and philanthropic side of your giving. Now, fast forward 30 years, and we're the biggest public charity in the U.S. now. So about four years ago, we passed the United Way in terms of contributions that come in on an annual basis. And then about three years ago, we passed a bill in the Gates Foundation as the largest grant maker. Wow. So it's 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 crazy growth. And I've been and here now. there was a reason we liked you and we talked to you. <laughs> <laughs> and this is all you're doing, right? Like, you, oh, this is all you, yeah, you've been doing That's, this for 30 years? Definitely. Definitely. So, um yeah, so when I started about 10 years ago, we had about 80 employees, about 50,000 accounts, and now fast forward to current day, and we're at about 500 employees and about 350,000 accounts. Um, so the last probably five, 10 years, the, the adoption of donor advised funds and the ability to use them at all different levels has become more and more popular. And you know, and, I, and not to dwell too much on the specific asset part, but you, but you brought up a very good point. We use as an example, uh, an appreciated single name stock. Right, but it doesn't have to be. And we'll get into different asset classes and things that we can do and get fancier later. But it could be a mutual fund. And a lot of times, when a new client comes to us and we have their existing portfolio and we do some analysis and we say, "Hey, gosh, here's this mutual fund that's in your portfolio. Maybe it's not the best fund, or maybe it's not as tax efficient as it should be. What is one of the what are some of the ways we can unwind that mutual fund? Well, if a, there are capital gains associated with just holding that, or, and this is one of the reasons that mutual, you know, mutual funds may not be that tax efficient for some people, that, that mutual fund can give off a capital gain distribution, even if the owner doesn't sell that mutual fund. So let's use the, the charitable donation, excuse me, the donor advised fund to get that position out of the portfolio, or at least start to unwind. Exactly. Yeah, it, it's it, there's a lot of applications for it. I mean, I worked with a donor just two weeks ago that had was gifted Disney shares in the 80s, and they were still in the form of a stock certificate. You know, that that was a great asset to give because it's like, hey, we'll just give it into our donor advised fund, take the tax section. I don't have to worry about converting them to electronic form or anything like that. So um, there are a lot of different ways that folks use the account and different types of assets that they use it with. Okay. And then can we talk just a little bit on just the fundamentals of donor advised funds? How do they work? 
you know, the contributions go in and then it's in a portfolio, just, you know, the rough mechanics of it all. It's just donor advice funds in general. Yeah. So at, at the highest level, it really helps donors separate the timing of their tax deduction with when they actually have to give the money out to charity. Right. So they put money, whether that's shares or cash, into the donor advised fund, take the tax deduction right then and there. The assets inside the account are tax sheltered in the sense they grow tax free. And then really at the donor's discretion, they're using the account to give out to their favorite charities, really at their own pace. Um, a lot of folks are always sort of confusing us with what private foundations do where they have to give out five percent a year. Donors in our program, there's no minimum dollar value or percentage that has to be sent out, even with that. You know, not, even with not having a minimum every year, our yeah. donors give out between about 19.5% and 21.5% of our net assets on an annual basis. So, and just to, to clarify again, so you had said, you know, Fidelity Charitable is one of the largest charitable organizations. Mm -hmm. So as a client making a donation to my Fidelity Charitable donor advised fund, that's not the end of the story, right? I'm not just giving right. it to Fidelity Charitable and there you go and that's the end of the story. I actually have some control over where that goes and how, do, how does that part work? Exactly. So basically, I mean, you fund the you fund the account with the appreciated stock for the tax benefits. And then the donor really is sending out funds in the form of cash to their favorite nonprofits, right? So a lot of our, you know, typical profile of a donor of ours is somebody that gives out maybe even if it's five, ten, fifteen thousand dollars a year and uses our program for just the administrative purpose. Right. So that at tax time, instead of going to the CPA and saying, all right, well, I have to look at my check register and I have to look at all the tax receipts I got from all these different charities. And hopefully I got everything and I paid one with my credit card, but I wrote a check to this one. It becomes an administrative nightmare for a lot of folks. And the reality is people leave a lot of money on the table on the table at tax time because they don't count all of this. So at tax time for a donor like that who gives out, even if it's a smaller amount per year, they hand their CPA one tax receipt from their donor advised fund, or they plug in the information into TurboTax, and it makes it so much easier, right? Yeah. So they're not going back and forth with the nonprofit, especially if you're giving the smaller ones or ones that don't really have a, a built out finance or accounting department, it becomes you know awkward for a lot of folks that are saying, you know, hey, I need my tax receipt. And you're sort of following up with somebody that's not really, um, that's not their job. Yeah. The flip side of that, though, I think it's interesting to note that, you know, the planning has to go into the conversation. The planning needs to be a part of the discussion because it's irrevocable. Once the contribution goes into the donor advice fund, you can't say like, oh, my bad. Let me take that out again. Yeah. Yeah. Technically, I mean, the ownership changes, right? You're no longer the owner of that account. You have control to Paul's point and you can direct those funds to the various nonprofits. But, you know, it's technically... Fidelity Charitable becomes the owner of the donor advice fund. Right. So the gifted asset into the account is basically removed from the donor's estate, yep. right? So what they, and basically in exchange for the asset, they get the tax benefits, but right. they do have full discretion as to where the funds go to, whether that happens right away or in 10 or 15 years. So um, yeah, that's a very good point to keep in mind is a lot of folks ask, oh, like, should I open the account under my trust or how do I do this? But the reality is, is that once you gift the asset into the donor advice fund, you basically relinquish ownership of it in exchange for the deduction. And I was reading an article this week about how, you know, how donors can name and title this donor advice fund. And truly, you can name it anything you want. You could mm -hmm. even call it like, you know, the Sarah Foundation. And mm -hmm. it doesn't really matter in terms of um, technicality for the fund, which I thought was interesting. 
Can we right. change that? Can we change Fidelity Charitable to Sarah's Foundation? <laughs> <laughs> That's a really good, and it's a good point. Because, well, here's the thing is a lot of our donors will call it something like the Smith Family Foundation or right. Giving Fund or what, whatever the case may be. We have a lot of folks that will name it in honor or memory of somebody. Yep. I've seen like the Clean Energy Fund, Fishes and Loaves Fund, Scriptures. So it's really on the donor to say, well, hey, what do, what's my name on the account? And why folks name their account is because that actually appears on correspondence to charities when they send out funds. Yeah. Um, one thing that a lot of folks really do like about donor advised funds is sort of the anonymity piece of it, mm-hmm. right? Where a lot of folks will say, you know, hey, I love what the Red Cross and the Salvation Army do. I hate to get their weekly solicitations in the mail, though, right? So for folks that are kind of overwhelmed with the emails and the mailings of these different charities, some people will just disclose their account name to the organization and say, hey, this was made possible by the Jane and John John Smith Foundation. And then the charity has that information, but no real way to follow up with them. And and just a shameless plug for my mom, because she's the only one that listens to this podcast anyway. But, but she, <laughs> we love Nancy. Hi, Nancy. Hi, Nancy. <laughs> Thank you for listening, Nancy. <laughs> so for our one listener, no, for the, um, but they, my parents will literally sit down and go through the charities that they want to give donations to and if they get an overabundance of mail from those charities that makes them angry because the charity is wasting their money on all this mail and advertising and solicitation and they'll contact them and say hey look if you don't take me off your list we're not going to we're going to lower our donation right so i don't know if they actually do that they just kind of threaten to do it So, so kyle i have the sierra foundation donor advice fund i Mm -hmm. put my appreciated apple into this account and it's sitting there now under Fidelity Charitable. Is it in cash? What are the options in terms of how those funds kind of um, are dealt with from there? Mm-hmm. So we should talk about this too, is that uh, at the end of last year, we eliminated our account funding minimum. So donors can start off the account with whatever dollar value they feel comfortable with. A lot of folks will use it as a test case the first time. It's a new way of giving, sort of getting getting accustomed to the donor advice fund. A lot of folks will just start it with a smaller amount, give it out to their favorite charities just to see how it feels and looks. Um, but for smaller accounts, we give donors the option of 25 mutual funds to choose from. Um, obviously, your firm is very involved in all of that process. And then the reality is, is that this kind of feels and looks like a 401k in terms of options, right? There's this lineup of 25 mutual funds. The donor sort of has discretion. There's no fees for going into or out of the different funds, but it's all over the map. There are certainly fidelity funds in there, but there's also about seven or eight of those options are non-fidelity mutual fund choices too. But for donors that are sort of front-loading their giving or thinking about giving at a more of a long-term or having a big liquidity event income year and want to put more assets into their account at a quarter of a million dollars or more, your firm can actually manage the assets like you'd manage that same client's trust or retirement account. So um, really aligning their assets in their donor advised fund and their charitable account with um, you know, their other assets that that they have invested. So it kind of makes it in that way a little bit more seamless for folks that are saying, well, hey, I realize that I'm not going to give out a quarter of a million dollars right away. Let's be more aggressive in this account because the account does grow tax-free and then there's no penalty consequence for ups and downs, right? So a lot of folks will say, hey, you know, maybe we should be more aggressive about this or maybe we'll be more conservative because we really want to give out the money to charity. We want to know that we go back in there in a month and it's, that same principle is still there. So you have that quarter million dollar, um, you know, account, you have it invested. So there's potential for that value to go up, which means it's more money to the charity. However, the deduction that the client's getting is that initial funding of the 250. 
Exactly. Right. Tax wise, it's only about the way in, right? So it's only about contributing into the donor advised fund. The, the growth in it is tax free and giving out to your favorite charities as the donor does not really, there's no tax implication at all. So a couple of important points and I, I, before I forget them because my you know mental sieve of a mind will let it go pretty soon. So one of the things we talked about was front loading, right? So with changes in the tax code, um, it, that may have impacted some people's ability to take a deduction on a limit of their charitable giving, right? And that as is always up for debate and it may change in the future. But one of the advantages is, hey, if I give X amount of dollars per year, right? Whether that's 5,000, 50,000 or 500,000, I can pick a year that is convenient for me. Maybe I have a year where I have more income or I've realized a large capital gain or I've got a large inheritance that is going from an IRA that might be taxable. I can choose that year to do a larger charitable donation to the donor advised fund. And I don't have to give that all to the charity right away. And maybe I have my favorite charity that I give X amount of dollars to per year, but I can take that lump sum do that in a given year, take the deduction in that year, and then dole it out to my charity on a, on a regular basis. Exactly. Timing is so important with these with these donor advised funds. And just to set the stage about a little bit more information is that our average donor age is about 62 and a half, yeah. which goes to show you that these accounts are really a lot of times funded on the doorsteps of retirement when somebody has their last few higher than normal income earning years, right? Because then they, then they retire and they start taking their RMDs and things like that. Their income's a lot lower in those cases. So no different than how somebody puts money in a 401k to save for retirement or a 529 plan to save for college in the future. A lot of folks will front load their giving with us and pay for their retirement's worth of giving. Yeah. So somebody that gives away ten dollars or $15,000 a year, but has the income to justify making a bigger gift into the account in that high income year or higher income income year, um, it really makes a lot of sense for folks because, hey, you take the big deduction now, give it out to your favorite charities, and hopefully the tax-free growth allows them to make some free gifts down the road. Or, hey, like you pass on the pass on the assets to the next generation, they have them give to their favorite charities. So there's a lot of applications there. Yeah, and the other point you you made too is when we talked about getting, you know, yes, the the gifts are irrevocable, right? You give it to the to the charitable, you give it to the donor advised fund. You can't, you know, you can't take it back. That's, you know, that's one thing to take into consideration. But the other part of that is that the appreciation on that asset for estate planning purposes is now outside of my estate, right? So right. if I have an asset and I'm worried about my estate planning and, hey, this asset is going to grow at X rate and going to compound my estate planning problem, mm -hmm. then I can take an asset, get it out of my estate into the donor advised fund. And now with the growth on that asset, it, all the growth is outside of my estate. It's in the donor advised fund and allows me to do more giving. Totally. And that's, yeah, that's the reality too. I mean, this, this could, the statement could age in another week or two, but there's a lot of rumblings about the idea of the, uh, the federal estate tax exemption getting lowered or yeah. the idea that a step up in basis could be eliminated for the next generation. So um, there's a, I mean, there's a lot of reasons why folks will front load their giving and get out of their estate, even if they don't plan to give out all that money right away, or even in their own, in their own lifetime, especially if they want to instill the idea of philanthropy in the next generation or involve friends, family members in their giving. I mean, there's a lot of reasons why somebody would do that, even if they don't give away huge dollars every year. Yeah. And by the way, thanks for that annoying but unknowing but shameless plug for our other podcast we have talking about tax planning and what's going on in Washington. That's right. <laughs>
Um, and the other thing we talked about with portfolios, you mentioned mutual funds being available for, for smaller accounts. Mm. But if a client, um, you know, if it's a larger account, we can have control over those assets that are invested in that account, right? We can design portfolios and we can have, we can run them. It doesn't necessarily have to be a selection of those mutual funds for, for different Exactly. Accounts. Right. So at a bigger dollar values, you can sort of customize the investments in the donor advised fund account, right? So you can individual stocks, bonds, mutual funds, ETFs. A lot of donors are always saying, you know, hey, I love the performance of the stock that I'm gifting. I'd love to keep it that way. So we actually do allow for donors to maintain a 25% position in their in their portfolio of that same stock that they gift. So, you know, there's a lot of reasons, you know, for, for folks to gift an, an appreciated asset, but not feel like they're parting ways with it entirely. Sure, they're earmarking the dollars for charity, but they can still take advantage of the upside in the charitable context. Great. That's interesting. Are there, are, go ahead, sir. Are there any nonprofits that are off the table in terms of grants being distributed to, or is it kind of fair game? Like, how, how does that work in terms of who makes it on the list of um, 501c3s? So the easiest way to think about it is that we try to make sure that donors get the same tax treatment in as they would if they gave out to the same charity just out of their own pocket. So gifts into the donor advised fund are 100% tax deductible. So we have to make sure every gift leaving the account is lines up in that same tax deductibility manner. Right. So in terms of the charities that donors can support, it's really we kind of follow the guidance of the IRS. So if the IRS calls them a 501c3 charity and they're in good standing, no issues, um, then we'll also look at them as an approved organization. Um, a lot of times what comes up you know, in terms of what you cannot give to um, can't give to individuals directly. So a lot of folks will say, hey, I love to create my own scholarship fund um, and set this up and be able to. And they can still do that. It just has to go through a nonprofit. Right. So the nonprofit and then there's a little bit of checks and balances about who gets it. But at the same time, that same donor, they can't set up their own. You know, they can't call it the John Smith scholarship and issue it to, to Jane right directly out of their account. So Sarah can't do a charitable donation to my son. Correct. Okay. Not out of the donor advised fund, at least. Let's scratch that off the list. Oh, well, what about to my nieces? No. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, so that's one of the organizations. And then you can't give to political campaigns because if you do that out of pocket, there's no real tax benefit for the donor. Um, and then also private family foundations. So private non-operating foundations you okay. can't give to as well. So those are like what you typically would know as like a family foundation that operates sort of similar to a donor advised fund, but um, has a different, you know, di different sort of process to set it up and things like that. Okay, good to know. Can you set up, um, if I have a charity and I normally give X amount of dollars per year, can I just set that up so that it's, it just is on autopilot and happens? Yeah, pretty much. I mean, we have a lot of donors that do tithing or give to their religious house of worship on a monthly basis. And it's almost like bill pay. You can sort of set it and forget it. So you could say, hey, Fidelity Charitable, send out $500 to my church every month. And then instead of having to go into the system every month and entering it yourself, we'll automatically just send out the funds to the organization. So um, a lot of put, folks put it on autopilot, especially if they're giving to the same charities on a recurring basis. We allow donors to set, set these up on a monthly, quarterly, once or twice a year basis. Can you control how, like the name that the donation is, or the name of the grant? So, for instance, um, I'm making a donation to a nonprofit, and instead of it being the Sarah Foundation made this donation, um, can I call it something else, or can I be incognito so that there is no attention brought towards it? So, we give donors the option to disclose their full name and address to charity, their account name only, or remain completely anonymous. Okay. 
There's also an option for donors if they want somebody else acknowledged for the gift. Mm. So let's say you're making a gift to an organization, but you'd rather have your niece be the one that receives the acknowledgement so that the charity will reach out to her and say, hey, thanks for sending us $100 for the Relay for Life. You know, So that's an option too for folks that want to give, but want to give in honor or memory of somebody. Uh, now, what if there's a charity and that charity has several sub projects or causes? Is there a way to sort of earmark it? Hey, you know, my uh, my church is putting in a you know a bench next to them, and I want this to go to the to the bench project. Is there a way to do that? Yes. So on every gift, donors have the ability to tell the charity how they want the funds used. And it actually appears on correspondence to the nonprofit. When we send them a check or an EFT, they'll get the information about how the donor wants the funds applied. So they can, let's say that we'll kind of keep the Relay for Life example consistent, where um, if they want to give to a specific team, they can reference team ID 1234 so that the charity receives the funds and knows exactly where to apply them. Um, what, what if, um, hey, you know, someone calls uh, grandma or grandpa and they say, hey, this is the, this charity in your neighborhood and grandma or grandpa go on. Is there any, any safeguards or protections to help, you know, make sure it's not a scam or it's going to the wrong place? Or Yeah, so we get a direct feed from the IRS updated on a biweekly basis. So the I, we sort of like defer to the IRS about what charities are legit and what are not. Um, there have been situations in the past where we've stopped gifts to certain organizations. Like I, there was an organization a couple of years ago, I won't mention their name, but they had some, they were in a, basically misappropriating funds with their board. So we sort of blocked gifts going to them for a little while. Um, we also give donors the ability on our website when they find and search for a charity, we have a link on every single one of them to their GuideStar profile. Oh, awesome. So Folks that are really interested in learning more, like, for example, if I want to give to, let's say, an Orange County food bank, but I don't really know what's out there, right? What, what are different options for me? I can just type in, just like how Amazon or Google works, you just type in Orange County food bank, a few listings will come up. And then you, as a donor, you can research the charities further, see what their mission statement is, how much of the dollar that you give to them is spent towards their program versus their overhead, and really take a deep dive. So yeah, we try to, we try to be transparent for donors and also not not only that, but also give them the tools they need in order to be effective with their own philanthropy. You know, a lot of people might not know what Guide, GuideStar is. Can you just talk briefly about what that sure. is? Sure. It's, it's just a database that does research on on charities, right? Yeah. It just, it, and it, it's very, uh, it's comprehensive. I mean, it really goes into a lot of information. You'll be able, as a donor that's kind of surfing that website, you can see the different programs of a nonprofit, different initiatives, the financials, mission statements, linked to their website. So, um, it's pretty comprehensive for folks that want to spend the time and research organizations that they may be interested in giving to that cause area, but may, but may just not know what's out there. Yeah. Okay. Um, so, you know, we work with a lot of families and we talk about long-term planning and some advanced planning and we work with their estate planning uh, attorneys. And when we go through and we do this and they're charitably inclined and they talk about, okay, well, should we set up special trusts or a private foundation can you just talk briefly about how a donor advised fund sort of compares to some of those other vehicles? Yes. So there are, I mean, there's a lot of different options out there and the donor advised fund doesn't fit everybody, but in terms of lifetime giving where a donor is looking to make a, a gift, take the tax deduction right away and then use the money to give to their favorite charities during their life. That's where donor advised funds and private foundations really come. Yeah. 
Um, private foundations are good vehicles if the donor wants to really take ownership and almost open the foundation as if it's their charitable business, mm-hmm. right? I mean, it costs money to open the, the private foundation. They'll have to engage with an attorney to actually get the 501c3 status. Um, they have an annual tax filing. And then, you know, as a donor, you're sort of on the hook to be responsible for the compliance part of it too, um, in terms of giving out to the favorite charities. So, I would say foundations make sense at a higher dollar values to justify the cost, right? So if you're starting a foundation with anything less than a million, it's probably not the right move. But um, if a donor does have that kind of capital, they want to commit to charity and want to do it so that they can do things like hosting charity events or golf outings or dinners, fundraisers, or give to set up their own scholarship fund through the foundation, that makes a lot more sense to do it with because there's a lot more flexibility, in foundations, donors can hire a staff, you know, do research on grants, pay for travel, site visits. So there's a little bit more flexibility with how the money in the foundation is spent. The deduction limits are a little bit lower than giving to a donor advised fund, um, which is a public charity in the eyes of the IRS. So the donor advised fund has the same registration as the Red Cross or the Salvation Army from a tax perspective. Yeah. Um, and it, that's sort of the, if the, in terms of the dollar value, I mean, the dollar value question always comes up, but it's you know, it's more about what you want to do with charitable giving versus kind of, oh, do I want to set up a foundation because my neighbor has one? Right. You know, it's like, hey, if you want to use it as a grant making vehicle, you there's no dollar value that makes sense with the donor advisement over the private foundation. But if you really want to dive in and almost set up your own type of charity, then foundations make a lot of sense. Um, in the context of estate planning, it's becoming more and more popular, especially with, with where interest rates are right now, to set up these charitable lead trusts which basically give donors a partial tax deduction up front, the income or payments out go to the charities. And then at the end of the life cycle of the trust, the assets, the principal, plus any interest typically goes to the next generation. So it's a nice estate planning tool for folks that want to remove assets from their estate and be able to pass them down in a more efficient way. Um, in those con- in those cases, a lot of donors, I mean, the key is flexibility, right? Like how, how can you give yourself the most options while being strategic? And a lot of folks will create a donor advised fund to be the recipient of those lead payments on an annual basis. So that donor that says, you know, hey, we're setting up a charitable lead trust or a charitable remainder trust that is sort of the inverse of that where the income goes to the donor. And then at the end of it, the charities benefit, but People will give themselves flexibility and say, hey, I'll name my donor advised fund in that capacity as that charity so that, A, I can select every year which charities benefit. I can change my my stance. Hey, maybe one year I give to this organization or these three. Maybe next year I'll hold on to it, grow it a little bit more so we can make a bigger gift over time. If you set up charities directly in those contexts, you're sort of limiting yourself as a donor. And then if you ever want to change that, I mean, think about yourself 20 years ago. Like That's usually the, the length of these trusts you're different. You have different ideas, different thoughts, and people become more philanthropic or more aligned with certain charities over time. So the key is flexibility, but there's a lot out there. I mean, there's a lot out there for folks. Is it because in the charitable leads trust and charitable remainder trust uh, legal documents, you have to indicate the nonprofit you want the funding to go to? Correct. So in those cases, a lot of people will just say, oh, okay, well, I want to give to this one organization, but you're locked into giving to them for 20 years at that same dollar amount. So that's why folks will use their donor advised fund to receive those funds, because then every year you can make the changes. You can say, well, hey, we'll give to this charity now, but maybe next year we'll give to a different one. Mm -hmm. Interesting. Uh, What about costs? Are there costs associated with setting up, with actually setting up the donor advised fund? There's no cost to set it up. 
right? We actually, at this point in time, now have hundreds of accounts that are set up for estate planning purposes. And I'm sure we'll get into that a little bit later, but it's, yeah, there's no cost to set it up. We do charge um, an annual administrative fee when there's money in the account. And that typically starts at 60 basis points or six tenths of 1% on an annual basis. And, uh, you know, for those that are interested in, in how it works is that it kind of works like a mutual fund expense ratio and that it's factored into the returns of all of our, our mutual funds. And if it's managed, then it just comes you know, out of the proceeds. So um, I always tell donors that it's, hey, like this is dollars you've already taken a tax deduction on and the investment growth that's tax free should much, much outweigh the, any, any type of fees on the account. Correct. So I've already given my $50,000 or my $100,000 or whatever that dollar figure is to the donor advised fund. And then those fees are deducted from that after my tax, my tax deductible gift to the donor advised fund. Exactly. Yeah. And then it's also, and but then also that fund is invested and growing. So mm-hmm. that theoretically should certainly outperform the cost of the donor advised Exactly. Fund. Yep. And then there's no transactional fees or anything like that. A lot of folks ask me that too. Like, what if I don't make any gifts in a year. What if I send out $150 grants to all these different charities? And that's 0.6%. That's the first tier on the first half million. That's all in. So that's all the tax reporting, all the grant making, um, all the investments, online portal. Um, A lot of folks like using our program because we have an iPhone app, um, which kind of mirrors like a virtual checkbook. So if a donor is at a charity event or is talking to a development person, they would typically, and when they're doing the inefficient giving of cash, you know, they're going to write them a check, but in this case, they can just plug into their phone, hey, $10,000 or 5000 to this organization, and they can just turn their phone around and show the development person and say, hey, it's I'm, coming. I mean, I have to say the the um, platform is pretty foolproof. I mean, it's easy yeah. for this fool, so um, <laughs> job well done. You, oh, when she says this fool, she's talking about me, by the way. Right. <laughs> <laughs> I'm talking about this fool? I mean, truly, it's, it's like a wizard, so you really can't go wrong. You have to choose yeah. the next option to move forward to the next page, and then bada bing, bada boom, and it's done. Yeah. I sort of like to think of it like it's almost like Amazon where you're sort of searching for the organization. You find it, you enter the information, how much you want to give, purpose, mm-hmm. how you'd like to be acknowledged. Put it in your shopping cart and you can do multiple at the same time. Try to make it super easy for folks and for other individuals that don't love to go on the computer. Um, we also have a customer service team that can take all the information verbally from folks. So a lot of people still do call in their grants and say, hey, send $100 here, $50 there. And Fifty dollars is our minimum, so every grant has to be at least that amount. So, Kyle, could I give my nieces access to my donor advice funds to gift to a nonprofit that's meaningful to them? Is that is that legal? Is that kosher? How how does that work? It's sort of. So we have this. It's it's sort of like a gift card online, so that you can send out this what's called a gift for giving from your donor advice fund for a recipient to then spend at their favorite charity, okay. right? So it's all online. So it does, there's no age you have to be in order to be a recipient of it. But around like this, the holiday time frame is when people really start to use this a lot. Like grandparents will use it with their grandkids. Um, folks will use it with their nieces, nephews, their own kids and do it at Thanksgiving, give everybody a hundred dollars. Then everybody gets back together on Christmas or Hanukkah and says, Hey, who did everybody give to and why? Right. And those are the kind of things where you're really involving other folks. And I think you know, there's a, there's a lot of applications for it, but we have, uh, I was talking to a donor the other day that uses it to give to like business partners and folks that he would normally send like a fruit basket or edible arrangement to. He'll send over a hundred or $200 from his account. That person gives to their favorite charity. The recipient of the gift for giving is the one that the charity acknowledges for the gift. It's not the donor. Um, and then the recipient doesn't have, obviously have any access to the account or anything. They just have access to this gift card of 
X number of dollars. So they don't have the deduction, but they get to choose the nonprofit where the funds go. Right. Because keep in mind, the deduction happened when you're when exactly. the client funds the account. So this is just another gift out to, to a charity, basically. In, in that case where, you know, a lot of times and stores love this when you give a, a gift card and then you never and the people never use the gift card, they lose the gift card. Right. Because mm-hmm. in that case where, OK, Sarah set up some gift cards and, and she sends out her charitable gift cards, but the recipient of those doesn't use that. Is the money lost? Is the money gone? Automatically after six months or 180 days, whatever is left over in that gift card automatically gets credited back to the donor's account. So we do have sort of checks and balances there about just saying, hey, if there's if the person doesn't spend it after six months, it just gets put back into the donor's account, basically. Okay. And then Sarah, how old are your nieces? They are four and six. Yeah. How much <laughs> are you giving them to give away now? <laughs> <laughs> well, what I was thinking was um, using your donor advice fund. Oh, yes. Yes, yes, yes. <laughs> oh, okay. Well, uh, you know, give them hog wild. Well, they could probably use the app better than I can. So that's, you know. Can, no, but I, I mean, help I love- me figure this out. Right. <laughs> I, mean, I love the idea of doing it on the holidays. It really opens up conversations with families on on philanthropy and legacy planning, which I think is so critical. Um, one of the things I, I really like about the Donor Advice Fund is that it can be used for succession planning in terms of mo- in generations within families. So, um, can you talk about kind of what happens if I'm the, if I create this Donor Advice Fund, and and many many years from now I pass away, what happens to this pool of funds um, going forward? Yeah. So. Uh, well, I'll start answering that question. And so basically we give donors the option. We talked about it before. It's not part of their estate anymore once they gift into the account. However, we allow donors to create a succession plan in their DAF and basically give them the option to name individuals, which a lot of time they do, the next generation. So their kids can take over the account and give to their favorite charities after their uh, parents pass. And I'm sorry, sorry but just the yeah. shorthand, DAF is the acronym for donor advice. Yes. Sorry about that. <laughs> And uh, so, yeah, so individuals, that's pretty common, our most common successor option. We have a lot of donors that don't have kids or their kids aren't very interested in philanthropy. So we also give donors the ability to specify one or more nonprofits to receive the funds that are left over in their account. And then about six years ago, we created this endowment structure because a lot of donors are using their their donor advisement and their succession plan in their bigger estate, right? They're, we talked about it before about the charitable remainder trust, but people do their estate plan now decades before they pass away. So instead of naming all these different charities as a beneficiary of the trust or the IRA, they'll just name one sole charitable beneficiary and that's their donor advised fund. So sometimes we have significant assets coming into the account after somebody passes. So donors came to us and said, hey, like I have $5 million coming into my account when I pass. My church gets like $150,000 a year in total contributions. I don't really feel comfortable paying them a $5 million check right away. So we created this endowment that said, instead of making this huge lump sum to a charity, a donor can basically set up an income stream for years and years after they pass to a charity to basically, instead of getting that $5 million, they can get $50,000 or $100,000 a year into perpetuity. So the donor is really giving from the grave in some instances. And be, I mean, talk about leaving a legacy, you're still giving years and years after you pass away. So there, it, it's become a lot more popular especially with the estate planning context of it. And, you know, just to touch again on the, you know, what assets are going to who and, hey, I got to do some planning and I have these assets. And and one of the things we go through and talk about with clients is when you're deciding, hey, X amount is going to go to a charity, X amount is going to go to my nieces and nephews or my kids. 
we have to take into consideration what's the taxation on those assets when the person receives that, right? Because right. Hey, if it's in a taxable IRA, that's one thing. If it's in a Roth, that's another thing. If it's insurance proceeds, that's completely other. If it's in a taxable account that hopefully gets a step up in basis, that's another. So when we talk about it and we say, all right, well, the taxable IRA is probably the least advantageous to leave to an individual. Can I make the donor advised fund a beneficiary of my IRA? And if I can, does it have to be 100% beneficiary? It, so yes and no. So yes, you can name it as the beneficiary, you know, name the donor advised fund as a beneficiary of the IRA and a partial. A lot of folks do it on a contingent basis too, right? On the death of the surviving spouse, whatever is left over goes into the donor advised fund. Uh, and then, yeah, basically, yeah, that's how it works. And we'll work with the custodian, whether it's at Fidelity or outside of Fidelity to get everything over once we find out that the donor passes. And it basically administratively takes a lot of the burden off the executor of the estate in these cases, too, especially if you're naming charities outright, multiple charities, you're like, hey, well, now the Red Cross, the Salvation Army and my YMCA all have to set up accounts at Fidelity, get the money in there, liquidate it. So it becomes a process where all these charities, instead of doing all that process, they'll just get a check from your, from the donor's account at the end of the day. So um, it makes it really easy. And you made a good point too. Like we, this is probably a plug to your estate planning uh, podcast too, but so the elimination of the stretch IRA, right? Where you're able to stretch out the distributions. Now, now as a beneficiary, you have to take it in 10 years, yep. right? So that's, there's brutal. a lot of good. It's brutal. brutal. It's, I mean, it's horrible, yeah. but but there are ways around it. So a lot of folks will create a charitable remainder trust as the beneficiary of an IRA account like that and basically stretch it out now, right? So that if there is a charitable context, you can name the income beneficiaries as the next generation. They can take it over 20 years plus basically the life cycle of the charitable remainder trust as income and not feel like they have to be pressured into taking it in 10 years, especially with folks that are in still in their peak income earning years and now are the beneficiary of that. It's like, oh, now I'm trying to do things that offset my income, not get more of it, right? So there's, I mean, there's a lot, of, I mean, that's a little probably like a 201 conversation, but it's still more and more being used given the fact that we do, have, I mean, basically the 10 year time frame really restricts a lot of folks. And, you know, sometimes we'll talk to, at least currently, we can make donations to charities uh, from an IRA to help meet our required minimum distribution, right? So if you're a client, you have a required minimum distribution. I can make a, a charitable donation from my IRA that helps me meet my required minimum distribution. Can you talk a little bit about how that works? With you know, can we can we take it from the IRA and give it to the donor advised fund and meet our RMD, or how does that work? So what you're referencing is called the qualified charitable distribution, which basically allows donors that are 70 and a half and older. Um, keep in mind the RMD age went to 72. Right, but still the qualified charitable distribution is still at 70 and a half. Ah. Yeah. And it allows them to take up to hundred thousand dollars out of their IRA and basically give it directly to charity. It accomplishes a couple of things. Satisfies a portion or the entirety of their RMD, and they don't have to pay income tax on the distribution. Now, in that same context, the donor doesn't get a charitable deduction, but they don't pay income on it, so it's sort of the same. Yeah. Um, the thing is that in the legislation. Their donor advised funds and private foundations cannot be used as an intermediary in those cases. So it has to go directly from the IRA account to a charity, uh, to a 501c3 operating organization. So, um, yeah, definitely used a lot. And that's the other thing, too. Like Folks that have the donor advised fund and all of a sudden now they have the IRA account, they're like, well, hey, we really don't need the cash from it every year. But we have this charitable account that we're trying to spend down. 
use the IRA account to fund it, you know, to fund the charities when you're 70 and a half and older, if you've set up the account earlier. And so you can continue to use both. And that's sort of the nice benefit of the donor advisement is that you don't have to give out money from it every year. We have an internal request for donors that they make one gift out of their account every two years. And our minimum gift size is 50 bucks. So a donor that has that IRA account, they don't really need the income from or the cash and they have the donor advisement, don't have to feel pressured to be trying to do both or in conjunction with one another. I think it's important to note though, for that qualified charitable distribution from that IRA, it has to go directly to the beneficiary or rather the nonprofit. It can't come into your checking account and then go and otherwise it's going to lose that tax exemption status. Exactly. Otherwise, in that case, they'd have to pay income on the withdrawal and then they get a charitable deduction by giving that money to the nonprofit. But it's basically a wash and it creates more paperwork and issues than it's probably worth. I mean, we kind of go through that on a case by case basis with the clients when we do the planning and say, okay, well, here's the deduction. If you take it out of the IRA, here's the deduction. Mm -hmm. If you use the appreciated stock, let's let's compare how you're going to be better off or worse off. But it's case by case. Right. Okay. Um, What are there? we talked about simple assets coming in, right? Appreciated stock, talked about mutual funds. What about more complex assets? What about, say, restricted stock or real estate or, you know, private company stock, that kind of stuff? So we touched upon this early on. And the idea is, is like when you give to charity, you want to give the asset with the highest percentage of growth in your portfolio. And I think it's really easy for folks to look at their brokerage account or their individual account and say, you know, hey, I have this really appreciated Apple stock, but they don't look past that, right? They just look at sort of what's publicly traded. So we do a lot of a lot of work in the non-public market as well. So most commonly the asset that's given that's not publicly traded is private business stock. Mm-hmm. Right. So a lot of donors that are going through a business exit, a liquidity event, whether they're an insider at the private company and they're the CEO or CFO or just an investor and Talk about an asset that has huge growth in it. Like a lot of the times with private stock, the cost basis or the amount that it costs to start the company is zero or very low. So that donor is paying, if you're in California, it's over 37% in taxes on the growth. So a lot of folks look at that and say, well, that's my most highly appreciated asset. Now, all of a sudden I'm selling my company or I'm selling my interests and it's creating a higher than normal income year for me. So these are all sort of like the perfect recipe to make the bigger gift. And that's an asset to consider. And I mean, there's always considerations in all of this. Um, any type, any type of asset, whether it's a C or an S corp, is good to gift. But the timing of the gift is very important. The donor has to make the gift before anything legally binding is is signed between buyer and seller. So if they're if they're selling the company. So I just you know thank you again for the unknowing but shameless plug for our other podcast that is specifically <laughs> for small business owners and estate planning for them. So yes, I, I'm glad we gave you the list ahead of time. Again, <laughs> you're going off. You have a few more. We have uh, a few more to knock off to, to mention before you go. <laughs> thank you. So so yeah, I mean that's and that's really the extent of it. I mean it just it's just a timing thing. You have to do the gift. But a lot of times donors will come to us with an LOI already in place, right? They'll have um, with a prospective buyer and they'll say, hey, is it still late? Well. 90% of LOIs are non-binding. It's actually a good fact pattern because that way we know that there's liquidity potentially on the horizon. So those are that's really popular. I would say that the next one that's sort of not publicly traded or sometimes overlooked is what you mentioned before is the control restricted stock piece. Clients that, you know, when you work at a company for 10 or 15 years and you start building up this, this equity compensation, all of a sudden 25% of your net worth is tied up in your company stock. Right. And you're an employee of the company. So you're like, you know, hey, we 
Um, I know it's going to do good in the future. I'm there. I mean, come on. Right. So uh, the idea is, is like, hey, you can start dwindling down that interest right over time and use it to fund your charitable ambitions. And just like how you can sell an asset like that, you have to it's, it's better to do it during an open trading window. Right. So it's like it's always good to it, you know, basically structure your gift in the same way that as if you're selling it, although it's different on, on a filing standpoint. So are you, are you suggesting like vested stock? Is that what you're referring to? Yeah, a lot of folks ask me the question about like what type of equity compensation is good to gift. And a lot of it comes up with restricted stock units, right? It's like, oh, I have these RSUs, they're vesting, I don't have to pay income on it. Unfortunately, you can't give that asset. But once those RSUs are vested and then held for a year, those are the prime candidates to give to charity or a donor advice fund. But you still are being taxed from an income standpoint when those shares vest. Correct. That you're getting the appreciated stock out of your estate. Exactly. Okay. Yep. And that's, you know, that's more of a, like we talked about it before, the concentrated position, you know, that's the ability to start dwindling down your exposure to one stock in your portfolio and saying, well, hey, I work at this company, I'm selling shares, 10B51 plans, these structured sell downs um, are becoming more and more popular and folks are incorporating charitable giving either into it or doing it in conjunction with selling, right? So a lot of that, a lot of insiders at companies are faced with that. And then I would say the next sort of kind of more creative way of gifting is in the form of cryptocurrency. I mean, with, I think Bitcoin today was close to $70,000, which is up over 9,000% from five years ago. I mean, you look at the equity market and not many stocks have appreciated to that level. Um, so a lot of our donors are saying, well, hey, I want, I you know I have a lot of growth in this. I'm selling some. Um, and then ideally, if you're giving to charity, your basis is so low in an asset, if you've been a longtime investor in there, that the same benefits of giving that or appreciated stock apply. You know, the donor doesn't have to pay the capital gains on that growth and they get the, the deduction based on the value today. So um, in this year alone, we've taken in $165 million worth of Bitcoin by itself. So wow. um, it's so a huge number. You can use crypto then. That's that's good to know. Yeah. Is there anything that you that's off limits? I get the question a good amount about collectibles. So like artwork is a common one. And the, there is this uh, IRS clause called related use, which basically says if you have a tangible personal property like artwork or like a car collection, if you give it to a charity that has it built into its mission, you get a fair market value tax deduction. If you give it to a donor advised fund or a private foundation, you can only deduct what you pay for it. Mm. Some donors, a couple of years ago, we took in a wine collection from a donor um, that was older in age and didn't really need the tax deduction, but wanted to use the proceeds with several different charities, right? So there are situations where the deduction is not important, but instead of giving all of that asset to one charity, some donors like to spread it out. Real estate is a good point too, especially with property value with where it is in, in America today. Um, we get a lot of inquiries for it. A lot of what we take in is in the form of commercial property in the form of LLC interests, where somebody is exiting and, you know, basically selling their commercial building or their apartment complex and will piece off 10 or 15% of it into their donor advised fund, just as a way to offset income in the higher than normal income year, have the pre-tax money to give to their favorite charities. And the reality is it's sort of the same thing with what we talked about before is the basis in a lot of these assets is a really low. Right. Okay, so the intent has to be expressed prior to the transaction closing. Otherwise, no way to do that. Right. The IRS has this clause called anticipatory assignment of income that basically says if you've progressed so far along in a sale like that, whether it's your private company or whether it's a real estate or even a stock, uh, even like a shareholder vote on a publicly traded stock, 
anything gifted after the fact is basically they suggest that you're assigning income that you've already realized to a charity. If you do it even the day before anything legally binding assigned, that same issue doesn't apply. Yeah. But again, a shameless plug to our small business planning. Uh, <laughs> How many shameless plugs are you going to do? Well, oh, yeah. Yeah. We, got, we got crypto in there too. So we're just like going That's right. We're about left and right. But as a small, if I'm, hey, I've, I've, I've identified that I'm probably going to be selling my small business in X period of time. I'm going to have this large liquidity event. Part of that I know I eventually want to be using for charitable donations. I can give away part of my existing company's ownership into my donor advise fund and then do the transaction. Right. Exactly. And then on the cap table, Fidelity Charitable actually does become a shareholder. And we're obviously we're a passive shareholder and um, you know looking looking just as the as the donor is to get liquidity in the asset too. So um, you know, it makes a lot of sense for folks to do it. And what what usually comes up especially with these private stock gifts is that all of a sudden now like the, the CEO that does this, all of a sudden the CFO is like, hey, I want to do this too. You know, hey, this makes a lot of sense. So I just worked on a situation where we had seven investors in a private company that's going through a liquidity event do donor advised funds pre-tax just because of how easy it is to replicate the process with other individuals. Yeah. You have been busy, Kyle. You have been busy. Yeah, that's what they say. <laughs> yeah, I, Sarah said you weren't busy. I was telling her you were. But, you know, that's a... Listen, Kyle, I don't know if there's other things that we haven't done, but you have been more than generous with your time. Really, really appreciate it. We could keep you here and, and talk about this for a lot longer, but uh, I don't know if anybody, I don't know if my mom's still listening. <laughs> Nancy's logged off at least 17 minutes ago. Nancy went, <laughs> Nancy went to go put something in the oven. Or <laughs> but thank you so much for your time. Really. Thanks, Kyle. It. Yeah. Uh, thanks so much for having me. I always, I always enjoy working with you and, and uh, I really appreciate you having me on. Yeah. And then we have some materials too from Fidelity Charitable will attach to the podcast. And then anybody that's interested too can connect us and we'll, we'll go through the materials with them. But Kyle, thanks very much. Thank you. Thanks. Bye. So that's our episode for today. Thank you for listening. If you found this topic interesting or useful, please let us know. Or if there are other topics you'd like us to address, let us know that too. We'd love to hear from you. Thanks for joining us and thanks for being invested. The RAND Group is a group comprised of investment professionals registered with Hightower Advisors, LLC, an SEC-registered investment advisor. Some investment professionals may also be registered with Hightower Securities, LLC, member FINRA and SIPC. Advisory services are offered through Hightower Advisors, LLC. Securities are offered through Hightower Securities, LLC. This is not an offer to buy or sell securities. No investment process is free of risk, and there is no guarantee that the investment process or the investment opportunities referenced herein will be profitable. Past performance is neither indicative nor a guarantee of future results. The investment opportunities referenced herein may not be suitable for all investors. All data or other information referenced herein is from sources believed to be reliable. Any opinions, news, research, analysis, prices, or other data information contained in this presentation is provided as general market commentary and does not constitute investment advice. The RAND Group and Hightower Advisors LLC or any of its affiliates make no representations or warranties expressed or implied as to the accuracy or completeness of the information or for the statements or errors or omissions or results obtained from the use of this information. The RAND Group and Hightower Advisors LLC assume no liability for any action made or taken in reliance on or relating in any way to this information. The information is provided as of the date referenced in the document. Such data and other information are subject to change without notice. This document was created for informational purposes only. The opinions expressed herein are solely those of the author and do not represent those of Hightower Advisors LLC or any of its affiliates.